Welcome to Propinquity Press, where we bring people together with the hope that that experience changes the world. We hope you enjoy this selection by author William Spangler Dunning. The Tunnel and Other Okay Places In every church, there are hidden places that for children are more sacred than the sanctuary. When human beings are young, they are completely drawn to concealed locations that adults cannot easily occupy. I love squeezing under couches and sleeping inside a tent made with a bed sheet and a box fan. There's something comforting about a place that seems only meant for you, and even now, as an adult, long past my couch crawling days, I love to find space that seems only fit for me at that moment in time. I had heard rumors about the tunnel in the basement of our church since I was old enough to form memories. On occasion, I would get a glimpse of a group of older youth going downstairs and through a locked door, but once they entered, they never came back out again. Some of my nibbler friends told stories of hearing voices and laughing emanating from underneath the sanctuary floor, but our adult sponsors always assured us that it was more likely just sounds of squeaking water pipes or possibly unexplained noises from other mechanical equipment. And once, when my youth sponsor asked me to retrieve a Bible from the sanctuary pews, I clearly remember hearing whispers coming from beneath the choir loft. I never wanted to admit it back then, and I still don't like telling the story now. But it must be told, for it too is why I turned out okay in this world. As human beings, we all eventually discover a part of ourselves that wants to hide in the dark. The church defines this trait as, quote, sin, or turning away from what God intended us to be. This darkness manifests itself differently for each person, but for me, my inner darkness, ironically, emerged from a flaming burst of light. The grunts and groans grew louder, seemingly rising from deep beneath the sanctuary floor itself. The minister had gathered all the youth and adults in the sanctuary for a closing worship service following an overnight ritual retreat in the church called a lock-in. A lock-in is a long-standing youth ministry event in which youth and their adult sponsors arrive at the church late one night and are, quote, locked in the church overnight. It is hoped that by allowing youth to run through the church, playing hide-and-seek, watching movies, and eating pizza, their faith understandings will somehow grow deeper. In an attempt to solidify some sense of faith development, there will always be a closing worship service following the sleepless night of church frolicking, where at least God's name and presence is invoked as a way of either blessing the activities or perhaps simply to cover up any unknown iniquities. As the noises grew louder, the minister's eyes began scanning the crowd in an effort to recount all the youth in the sanctuary, with the prayerful hope that he would come up with the same number as he had the night before. If I am to believe the story I was told about that faithful morning, the minister stopped mid-prayer with the realization that two of the youth were missing. As he quickly deduced that the noises rising from below were being created by the intimate interaction of these two wayward youth, he stopped praying and ran out of the sanctuary, asking another adult to follow him. 
In our little church on Davis Street, there is a tunnel that runs underneath the sanctuary with the primary purpose of containing all the pipes, electric lines, and ductwork needed to literally keep the building alive. It is only accessible through the locked furnace room in the basement, or its secondary exit point, a trap door tucked in behind a false wall in the front of the sanctuary. This trap door sits squeezed behind the minister's bench and the foot of the stairs that leads to one of the most sacred spaces, the baptismal. For those who may not be familiar with the Christian tradition, a baptismal is a large tub of water used for the ritual immersion for those who choose to make a life as a Christian. In my faith tradition, most of us made this outward sign in the form of a watery plunge just as we were becoming teenagers, and likely not uncoincidentally during that time in our young life when other forces of our human nature were working from the inside out. The deeper theological understanding of this decision was often articulated in the words of the minister as he held us under the water. Through the distorted way words flow through water, those being baptized heard something to the effect that this act was a symbol of saying goodbye to our old self and a commitment to our new life in Christ. As the minister's words echoed off the bottom of the baptismal during my symbolic plunge, I also remember hearing something about my sins being forgiven and washed away. It was only later that it occurred to me to ask what happens to all the mistakes I make after that day. However, that is the point to this story, so keep listening. With the other adult sponsor in tow, the minister descended the stairs to the basement, unlocked the furnace room, and opened the door to the church tunnel. Grabbing the flashlight that the janitor had placed on a shelf just inside the entrance, the minister slowly brought a light into the darkness of that tunnel. At first, all the light revealed were warning signs to not turn this handle or only pull this lever in the case of emergency. Then, as the light traveled further down the tunnel, it reflected off of two very sweaty, teenage, naked bodies. Startled by the noise of the tunnel door opening, they had quickly disengaged from their grunting activity and stood up just in time to be highlighted by the minister's flashlight. In their embarrassment, reminiscent of the story of Adam and Eve from Scripture, they grabbed some of their clothing in a vain attempt to cover their private parts. This is how I came to know about the tunnel underneath our church. All churches and human beings in general have stories like this that are so outrageous and scandalous that the present generation is all but compelled to pass it on to the next one. By the time I was to hear a rendition of those particular happenings in the darkness of that tunnel, I'm sure that certain details had both been altered and names removed to protect the guilty. Some version of this story was always alluded to by our youth sponsor at every lock-in I attended, with the intent of discouraging us from spending too much time in the darkness of the tunnel, or for that matter, any other action that might seek to avoid illumination. Knowing a story about someone in the past who committed some egregious act underneath the sanctuary and likely directly under the pew where my family sat for Sunday morning worship was both horribly icky and excitingly humorous to my post-baptized self. I know that as a minister, I should have been completely appalled by such behavior, but back then, I was neither a minister, nor was I sure what kind of human being I was going to be. Besides, what I was about to learn 
changed the way I saw human beings and greatly affected how I was to understand myself, too. As a now fully trained and experienced minister, I can affirm with absolute certainty that there is neither a class nor some training pamphlet that tells a minister what to say when you shine a flashlight on two naked teenagers in the dark tunnel underneath your church. There is no transcript of what the minister said in those first few moments, but I'm guessing it's likely it was simply a bunch of half-syllables and partial words desperately seeking a complete sentence. In time, the story that surfaced down through the multi-generational expressions was that the minister remained calm and said, quote, Please put on your clothes. We will be calling your parents, and you will be sent home. However, remember, God does not give up on you, and neither will I. When you are ready to talk about what you did wrong here this morning, I will be willing to listen and welcome you back. Eventually, that sputtering minister, whose name was Cecil, became my mentor in ministry and often talked about what he liked to call stuttering grace. He would tell generic stories of moments from his own ministry when he did not know what to say. Quote, some of the things I have seen would shock you, he would say to me, and all I could do is stutter long enough to let my graceful heart overtake my judgmental eyes. Since I knew about that story with those two youth in the darkness of the tunnel, I always understood that he was really talking about that one moment in particular. Later, when I was to learn the real names of those youth, I became convinced that his real objective with his mentorship of me was to make up for something he had not gotten quite right with those in the tunnel that morning. He involved himself in my life to help me either avoid the dark tunnels that would surely come in my future journey, or at the very least, provide me with enough positive memories to serve as a resource to allow me to find the quickest way out. During the weeks leading up to our baptism, we were required to attend extra classes in which we learned about the earliest individuals who had made grave sacrifices to follow Christ and become his most dedicated followers. We were told stories of persecutions, crucifixions, and how many early Christians suffered greatly for their choice to become a disciple of Christ. With as much drama and passion that he could muster, our teacher weaved powerful narratives on how those early Christians had to gather in secret places like dark caves and tunnels called catacombs in order to worship their God. In a deep and ominous voice, the teacher would add, and if they were caught, they were all killed. However, these stories lost a little bit of their inspiring punch because these tales of great tragedy were often shared alongside small glasses of Kool-Aid and a couple of frosted sugar cookies. Out of a deep sense of desperation, our teacher finally took us downstairs to the infamous church tunnel for a live experience of those ancient catacombs. Many of my best childhood memories sprung out of the action of desperate adults attempting to find unique ways to compel the next generation to take seriously our faith in the modern world. Despite the fact that these unorthodox expressions of learning put my life at risk many times, I am extremely thankful for their efforts. Their willingness to color way outside the lines in their tutoring of me definitely gets them credit and mention in this story, as it surely helped me turn out okay in this world. 
However, it also provided me with several near-terrifying pedagogical practices that have allowed me to pass along the same kind of inspiration to the next generation of baptismal candidates. By the time I was invited into the darkness of the tunnel, it had long since been visited by multitudes of youth for decades. In case there was any doubt left in my mind that I was somehow the first to enter the darkness, the walls were covered with names from past generations. As I scanned the walls, I noticed the names of some of my Sunday school teachers, elders of the church, and even halfway down the tunnel, directly under our family pew in the sanctuary, was my own brother's name. Slightly askew and just under his name was the signature of someone named Judy Pastel. I remember thinking at the time that it was strange to see my brother's name in the tunnel, for I had never known him to attend church. My brother seemed to hate church as much as I loved it. My brother had made it clear in many family discussions that some unknown thing had happened when he was younger, and from that mysterious moment onward, he and the church were destined for different paths on this earth. It is not that he never talked about church or the event that had forever directed his dislike for church people. It was just that his own need for self-protection always made it difficult to know exactly what he was really saying. Within the few details about what had happened in that youthful metaphorical moment of darkness, it seemed as if it had tainted his understanding of both who he was and limited who he thought he could become. It was as if that one moment, that one decision made in his youth, tethered him so tightly to his past that it never allowed him to grow beyond it. Whatever darkness had engulfed him as a child was still swirling around him when I grew old enough for him to notice my existence nearly a decade later. Most of what I remember about my brother during that time comes from overheard words spoken to others when he did not know I was listening. This indirectness in my hearing always left me straining to interpret his incomplete sentences into something that could be comprehended by a Martian still learning to think like a human. As my own development as a human being grew mature enough to understand the deeper things he was revealing in the words he did not share with me, I was well on my way to becoming one of those, quote, church people he strongly disliked. While the tunnel light still illuminated every air duct, electric line, and conduit, this alternative educational experience felt like a positive childhood adventure. However, as a small candle was placed in my hand and the lights were turned out, something shifted in the core of my body. Without any hint of light, my imagination began to make up a world around me. First, the gentle circulation of air flowing across my arm became a giant serpent, attempting to determine which of my friends to eat first. Then, as the heating ducts expanded with a startling pop, and water began coursing through the pipes to fill the baptismal, I began to feel an uncomfortable need to run away. I remember feeling the intense need to stand up in the darkness and run away from the images pulsating through my mind. In those few seconds of darkness, though it felt much longer, I could not tell the difference between my own internal fears and the real world around me. The heavy breathing and screams reverberating up and down the tunnel seemed to indicate that all human beings struggle to clearly differentiate between internally generated fears and the concrete reality around us. In many ways, 
these two worlds blended back and forth with each other, acting like echoes passing in that tunnel. In time, I could no longer tell the difference between the fears I was creating in my mind and what was truly in front of me. I could feel my skin heating up and my heart beating ever faster until I knew I was either going to faint or attack every serpent-looking water pipe and air duct in that tunnel. That is when I saw the light, growing in the distance, one flickering candle flame at a time. As the ancient form of light made its way toward my own candle, I heard these words echoing down the tunnel. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. When I returned to that exact moment in my life, sitting side by side in that tunnel with my childhood friends, I see them half-lit in the warm glow of the candlelight, and I understood that I was not alone to battle the darkness of my life. The lumens, produced by a single candle, or even twelve tightly held candles among my friends, did not equal the brightness of even one 100-watt incandescent bulb. However, it is also true that when one is being consumed by darkness, it only takes the smallest hint of light to serve as a guiding luminescence toward the belief that you're going to be okay. In the awkward moment that often occurs at the end of a teacher's lesson, in those fleeting seconds when it is hoped but not fully confirmed that the students have internalized the learning deep enough to last, an unintended exclamation point was placed on my memory. I have found that dangerous moments in which all involved escaped without harm or injury become best told by storytellers years later, emphasizing the laughter while withholding the names of the guilty. In a display similar to fireworks in the night skies on the 4th of July, a sizzling light show burst out in the darkness. After a few oohs and ahs and even a few screams, it was revealed that hairspray applied too generously, an act overly common in the 1980s, can be ignited by a simple candle flame in the same darkness. High-pitched screams became the soundtrack playing underneath what appeared to be a very energetic shadow puppet presentation, as hands from everywhere moved in and out of the light, attempting to pat out the flames. As I inhaled the distinct odor of burning hair and hairspray, the memory of my church friends was stuck deep in my brain, deep enough that I still remember them like it was just a week ago when we played church together. That frightening and hilarious demonstration was over in only a few brief seconds, but the lesson of that tunnel was literally burned permanently into my soul. With the lesson completed, our teachers invited us to follow them, exiting through the other end of the tunnel, a secret trap door next to that baptismal. I'm sure this was intended to encourage us to see baptism and commitment to become a follower of Christ as the next step in our life. However, what I remember thinking first was how cool an adventurous life in the church had just become. Then, as my future self seemed to reach back into that moment, I felt the deep understanding that human life, including mine, would always be accompanied by darkness now and then. I also knew that the lessons I was learning playing church with my childhood friends would eventually become an essential life anchor once I moved beyond the physical walls of that church on Davis Street. There were other places throughout that church building that contributed to the okay person I had become. The thing is, 
that these spaces that clearly prepared me for the life I was to live were nothing special in and of themselves, and likely held no particular sacred meaning to anyone else. They were literally, at their best, just some ordinary, okay places that just happened to be the spot in which I sat, ate, and even urinated. They were just places, until they became the physical manifestations that call out to me from deep within my past, and I yearn with all I am to return on some kind of virtual pilgrimage to remember again those moments before I knew for sure I would be okay in this world. When I was very young and still short enough to easily walk between an average adult's legs with room to spare, I found it easier to sit on stairs than on pews or chairs. I remember feeling the coolness of the tile seeping through my shorts every time I sat high upon the top step of the staircase just outside the sanctuary. There was something comfortable and perhaps prophetically encouraging as I sat on those steps with my childhood friends, listening to the congregation sing the old hymns. This okay place comes back to me every time I find myself making a seat out of some church step while waiting on the rest of my life to come into view. Another okay place in that church turned out to be a couple of ordinary chairs in the basement fellowship hall of the church. I must have sat on every chair at some point in my young life. A chair is not very significant, I suppose, as the listener. You might think I am just exaggerating how much an ordinary chair could mean in my life. Yet we don't always get to choose those things that become anchor memories or the moments that change the direction of our lives. Those chairs were just, well, just okay chairs until I sat on them at a church New Year's Eve party with every elderly person in my home church. It was 1985, and I was in my last year of high school, and I chose, I will say that again, I chose to spend New Year's Eve in a church basement sitting on okay church chairs playing Scrabble and eating cookies with a room full of octogenarians. I'm sure they all thought I was a really weird Martian child for doing that, but at some point during that late night, as they cared for me and I laughed at their antiquated jokes and stories, I became more human. It was during that night, while sitting in those chairs, that I came to realize for the first time, or at least it was the first time I began to understand the inevitable truth about human aging. If you have ever been a human child, you know that aging is not a popular topic for children. Yet, as I looked into the eyes of those gathered with me that night, I knew that one day I, too, would be an octogenarian like them. I don't really know what Martians think about aging, or even if they do age at all. But at that moment, when you realize that as a human you will get older and in time cease to exist, it changes the way you go about living and frankly, it makes you care more deeply about the other human beings around you. I remember hoping that when I reached my later years on this earth, there would be other weird Martian children who would want to spend time with me. I really was a fairly weird human being back then, but I am perfectly okay with that. I have never had a more illuminating New Year's Eve party since that night with those octogenarians. Two other Okay locations in that building have lodged deep in the twists and turns of my brain. Now that I have moved far away from my hometown, 
I know I will likely never get the chance to return physically to that building. But still, on occasion, I can still feel the stickiness of the beanbag chairs in Harry's classroom and smell the peculiar odors of that nearly okay church bathroom. I am barely exaggerating when I say that all those okay places throughout that building taught me the deeper meaning of what it means to be church, and perhaps more importantly, human. I know that the standard righteous answer is that a church is not a building, but it is made up of a community of people who carry out the ministry. However, the memories of the people in that church who helped raise me to be okay in this world become most tangible in my memory when I remember the physical spaces in that building located on the corner of South Davis Street and East Wilson Street in Ottumwa, Iowa. As I reflect on the rooms of that church, I see the images of past mentors, teachers, and friends. They come to me slightly out of focus, but with enough detail that I believe if I simply walk through the open door in my mind, I will return to those moments that made me into the human being I have become. It is a little creepy and perhaps even more hygienically concerning to know that entering any church bathroom can transport me immediately back to my childhood days, to a time when I roamed the hallways of my home church. I'm not sure why churches have struggled to understand the importance of bathrooms in the church or why, when they finally did start adding them, they were either located in nearly inaccessible locations or were so narrow as to cause huge traffic jams between Sunday school and worship service. My pastor once jokingly suggested it was because bathrooms are not mentioned in the Bible, which would go a long way to understanding why churches resisted adding telephones to church buildings as well. In the end, it seems that past visionaries simply never imagined how important a church bathroom would be to a young Martian child, and therefore designed them with no greater purpose than a utility closet. Truth be told, many church bathrooms of that era often doubled as a utility closet, with mop buckets, brooms, and various dusting devices tucked into the back corner. The bathroom that I remember the most existed in between the nursery room of my nibbler days and the pre-kindergarten class down the hall. When I was still young enough to need an adult's boost to reach the water fountains, I never questioned the undersized doors or the one-lane entrance and on-ramps to the urinals. The space was so limited that patrons would have to turn sideways to pass each other in the short entryway. And worse still, as we queued up for the urinals, there was always that awkward lack of personal space, which caused many of us just to pretend that we did not have to go after all. As I grew up into a teenager, however, and more so as a full-size adult, the cramped conditions only served to condense and intensify the multiple types of body odors gifted there by previous generations. Some of the smell was mitigated or at least altered slightly by cleaning fluids and the hockey puck deodorizers in the urinals. If you've ever frequented a church bathroom that was constructed before 1980, then you have firsthand knowledge of this mix of odors I speak of. And if you haven't, I pray this story does not motivate you to take a pilgrimage to experience them. Human memory is often triggered by the most inappropriate and utterly disgusting smells but the stories that surface are able to transform those same odors into the deeper reasons why I turned out okay. Despite the many limitations of those bathrooms to serve as a truly hospitable space, and though no one ever joined our church because of their experience in those tiny rooms, 
I am forever grateful for the way they helped me remember my mentors from those days. There are a lot of churches on the planet who still have this design in their bathrooms, and when I find myself turning sideways, disgustingly awkward or not, I remember I am really okay because of the people of my home church. When my adult world begins to spin too quickly, or I find myself wondering if I have really been a good enough Martian ambassador, I often dream of standing in the front of the sanctuary, next to the baptismal and that trap door to the infamous tunnel, looking back over the little spaces in which other human beings made sure I ended up finding my way to being okay. As my mind drifts gently from the present world to the one that surrounded me as a child, I see all the rooms where I was made into a better human being. In particular, there is the classroom in which I learned to ask difficult and sometimes unanswerable questions about God and myself from the comfort of a beanbag chair. Most of my Sunday school teachers made up for their lack of deep theological and biblical knowledge through their extreme longevity of teaching. Nearly all of those who attempted to teach me when I was growing up in those church classrooms taught me in a manner similar to those who prepare meals by following written instructions from a cookbook. They read the scripture for the day from the curriculum book and asked the questions from the lesson plan, but did not always fully understand the deeper flavors behind the questions. It hardly mattered to me when I was young, and what they taught me instead was that they loved and cared for me. Before I fully mastered the art of learning through human words, I remember learning through the simple action of those teachers who were willing to spend a whole hour every Sunday morning with an inattentive, nearly always distracted, preteen child of God like myself. In my mind, these teachers are permanently stuck in the stage of faith development that they were when they taught me when I was a child. Once, when I returned to my home church after having been away for many years, those same teachers spoke to me as if I was still 12 years old and might not be able to understand the complexities of life and faith. The human brain must have some type of mental glue that affixes our understanding of the people from our life to the specific time period and space we last knew them. My teacher saw me as a little 12-year-old Billy, and my brain perceived them as the young parents they were in my childhood, trying their best to figure out their own understandings of God. This false reality was made more complete as I walked through the spaces, those rooms where I was taught to be kind and love others by standing with them. The chairs seemed smaller, and the tables were no longer where they sat when I was a highly distracted student. Another side effect of our brain's mental glue is that we are often surprised that the places we loved as a child are not preserved as museum displays of our childhood days, just waiting for us to return. No other room in my home church had changed more in my absence than the beanbag room. Not only had the furniture transformed into a more formal sitting room, but the people I knew then had moved on, either to other rooms of the church, other places in the world, and some were even rumored to have departed the planet. I must admit that I gazed longingly for a glimpse of a beanbag chair hidden in some back corner of the room. My heart fluttered in disappointment knowing fully now that human life is a series of temporary moments that change immediately as we walk out of the room. Yet as I sat down in one of the formal chairs, I could feel the fuzziness of my imagination lowering me into the squishiness of a fake leather beanbag chair. My peripheral vision 
lets me feel my friends of old sprawled on either side of the room, but it is Harry that I see with the most detail. Harry stands tall in the front of us, over seven foot if I remember correctly, doing his best to make learning the Bible relevant and interesting to high schoolers, who by their very nature believe only the things that directly impact them. Harry had wandered into our little church from a life of difficult choices. I never learned exactly what struggles and missteps he had made in his youth, but his desire to nudge his high school-aged son down a different path seemed to be a powerful motivation for his reason to serve as our teacher. Though he spoke to all of us who sat comfortably in those beanbag chairs, it was always his son whom he really hoped would overhear his words. Every parent hopes that their children will make better choices than they made, and with those better choices enable opportunities that take them down paths to a little better life on earth. However, it is also true that human beings are extremely gifted at becoming exactly what we see as examples around us, and so Harry had joined our church and become our teacher with the deep hope that his son would come to see something different in him. Harry was the first church person I knew who talked without filtering his words. He had not grown up in church, so had not been socialized to adjust his language or topics as he entered the halls of the church building. When you grow up in church, you are left to believe that God can somehow hear you differently inside the sacred zone of the building. I often observe this phenomenon as people transition from the parking lot to the front doors of the church. As the car door closed, They would yell one more time at their children or loudly whisper one more rumor to their spouse. This phenomenon was less a reflection on their hypocritical nature as it was an insight into the power of the social expectations that surrounded all of us as we grew up. Harry, on the other hand, had never learned these social niceties and so spoke to us in the same manner he talked to his friends at the bar the night before. It was not that he spoke in a series of cuss words or went out of his way to sound like the teenagers he was attempting to mentor. He simply spoke with words he used in his normal life, and as he did, we found it easier to make connections to our real life as well. He made it possible for us to move beyond our previous practice of simply replying to all questions asked with the answers we thought the teacher wanted. We had learned over the years that the answer to all faith questions is either God, Jesus, or if all else fails, say love. If we said them all together and the teacher smiled, we would get out of class early to roam the halls of the church without supervision. Like with most of those who taught me in my youth, Harry eventually drifted out of my regular memory and I lost track of him. However, just before I was to graduate from that high school classroom and head off to college, Harry affixed his memory to mine. You see, Harry seemed to have figured out that I really was from Mars, or I guess it's also possible that he was just trying to help me become a better human being. It was Harry, more than any other teacher, who helped to reinforce my earlier teachings of the darkness of that tunnel, though I think he might have done so by accident while protecting his son from my sprawling, unempathetic, youthful arrogance. If so, I am forever thankful for happy accidents. Though I was to begin my journey on earth completely unaware of what kind of human being I would become, by the time I was sitting in those beanbag chairs and listening to Harry teach us about faith and life, I had become confidently convinced that I was going to be okay. 
I was running 25 miles a week, had an awesome head of hair, receiving nearly all A's in my classes, and had an acceptance letter from Culver Stockton College. When you grow up with a lot of voices suggesting that statistically nothing good can come from your family, these kind of accomplishments create quite an extreme enhancement to one's self-perception and confidence. As I sat in those beanbag chairs, answering nearly all of the questions Harry would ask the class, my self-confidence had become so thick around me that I was able to block out effectively all negative voices. Unfortunately, it also created a barrier of arrogance that prevented me from noticing those who were coming behind me and likely needed to know that they too were going to be okay in this world. I don't remember being mean in the traditional understanding of bullying, but it was just that I was so consumed with the extreme privileges bestowed on me through the simple fact that I was yet one more human being that members of that church had seen as a child of God. Part of me still believes that I needed to feel a little joy for what seemed like an unimaginable dream that was beginning to unfold before me. However, without that moment, that came as quick as the bursting light of hairspray head in that tunnel, I know that I would not have been okay at all. Moments like these are likely remembered by no one but me. But I remember this one in every slow motion detail. For most human beings, those brief seconds of silence between my flurry of overconfidence arrogance and Harry's Herculean effort to be externally kind while his fatherly protective insides were boiling over would have been just that, too brief and unimportant to be retained in a memory. But the clear fact is that I remember that silence and every word Harry said next. Bill, school comes easy to you, doesn't it? The class had begun exactly like it had all year, with Harry asking us, what was God calling us to be in our lives? He liked to ask us this each time to encourage us to imagine what life could be rather than what life was. I think he wanted all of us, and particularly his son Kevin, to dream of a life beyond the world we had been raised to know. By Kevin's shrugging shoulders and disconnected tone in his voice, it was fairly clear that there must have been one of those unproductive father-son conversations about grades just prior to arriving at church. Most of my teachers always kept their personal everyday life separate from their Sunday morning life. Harry, on the other hand, was not like most of my teachers. This became abundantly clear as I began to share eloquently about what I thought God was calling me to be in the next 10 years. I still feel the pride building in me as I spoke about my recent accomplishments, and how that was an indication of the bright future God had planned for me. I can even remember switching to my British accent to emphasize how blessed by God I was to be one of the few heading off to college. Unknown to me, but obvious to everyone else in the class, especially to Harry, with each word I spoke, Kevin recoiled deeper into his beanbag chair. Harry tried his best to get me to notice what my exuberance of self-importance was doing to Kevin, but to no avail. He did that thing where you seemingly draw a line in the air with your eyes between the person speaking and the person you want them to notice. Nothing worked. So he just asked again through his now gritted teeth, and this time loud enough to interrupt my arrogance. 
Bill, school comes easy to you, doesn't it? It was not so much the question itself that created the silence in the room, but the fact that he had to ask the question of me to get me to notice what my words were doing to his son. Bill, do you realize how arrogantly self-absorbed you have become? I miss the old Bill, who listened more than he talked. I really do hope you will be okay when you go off into the world somewhere, but I'm a little disappointed in you today. As I sat squirming in that beanbag chair that had become suddenly barely okay, I thought, that is not a normal churchy thing to say. There were no flashlights illuminating my naked body in a dark tunnel, but the eyes of every one of my church friends laid bare my growing arrogance. I felt an anger fueled by unquenchable guilt building in my soul. And like my brother before, I just wanted to run away. I even remember trying to recapture some of the Martian powers of my childhood and attempted to vaporize Harry into another dimension. But by then, I had become more human than Martian. By the next Sunday, my confidence had turned into such a darkness that I could not even bring myself to enter the sanctuary for worship. I knew that what Harry had said was true, but I couldn't quite figure out how to climb out of that particular tunnel in my life. So before anyone else entered the sanctuary, I made my way to that old tunnel. I opened up the door and walked slowly to the other end. And while the congregation sang, Be Thou My Vision, I slowly opened the door by the baptismal climbed up the ladder, and sat there as quietly as I could, hoping no one would notice me. I still hear those words as this memory pulls me back to the biggest okay moment of my youth. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart, not be all else to me, save that thou art. Thou my best thought, by day or by night, waking or sleeping, thy presence, my light. I'm not much of a singer, but the words, the words mean everything to me. When church was over and most of the people had filed out, I heard Cecil's voice call out to me. You can come out now if you want. He said he could hear me moving around during the sermon, but decided to wait till after worship to talk to me. I, I thought it might be you, he said with a little bit of a stutter. Bill, you were going to make a lot of mistakes in your life. You were going to go through a lot of dark tunnels, so to speak. It happens to all of us human beings, even ministers. The God I have tried to teach you about will always be there to guide you out. If you acknowledge the darkness, if nothing else... I will be there for you if you lose your way. Then, in what felt like his own effort to set right one of his own losses from a tunnel in his past, he said, you know you are going to be okay, right? The more human I have become, the more mistakes I have made, and the more tunnel moments have entered my life. Some of them have nearly taken away the light of my humanity. Some of them were caused by others and were beyond my control, while some were clearly created by my decisions I made during those times when I, well, when I lost my way in the darkness. This story is not one of those tell-all kinds of stories, but what I will say is that without the members of that church on Davis Street, and particularly without a stuttering minister named Cecil, I and many others 
would not have been okay. A special note for a mentor. Cecil, if one day you should be listening to this story before you leave this earth, know that through the actions you may not remember doing or the words you have long forgotten you said to me, you did okay with this particular Martian child.